So we begin our Bible study this morning on this Feast of First Fruits in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. The reason I want to start there, which is not where I normally start on a festival day, is to see that the festivals were created before man was created. Before there was a single person on the earth. Verse 14 says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That word seasons is not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It's the appointed times of God. It's Shabbat and it's the Passover and the other feasts of the Lord that we just mentioned that teach the first and second coming of the Lord. Which, think about it for a moment, means God had planned for Messiah's first coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, then a 2,000-year gap in the second coming of the Lord before the first man was created. Before Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God knew that Messiah would have to suffer and die on Calvary's tree so that you and I, sinful mankind, could be redeemed. Have you thought about that? That's pretty awesome. Now go to Psalm 40, verse 7. This is where I normally start at all the feasts and festivals. Because there's always a question in somebody's mind of, why are we doing this again? Psalm 40, verse 7. Every one of the Psalms were written by a prophet. It says, Then I said, Behold, I come. Or in the King James Version, Lo, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Or in the King James, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. But what that verse means is, this entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is about the redemption of fallen mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. Let me do something I don't normally do. Think of the name of the first person in the world. What was his name? Adam. Or in Hebrew, Adam, which is Adam. You could separate the Aleph, which is the first letter, from the Dom. And the Aleph stands for God, and Dom is the word for blood. So the very first mankind was named after the fact that it would take the shedding of the blood of our Messiah Yeshua to bring mankind into eternal life. Go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is where you see all of the feasts and festivals of the Lord that are commanded. And the reason they're commanded is because of the prophetic things that they teach. Leviticus 23. We'll start with verses 1 and 2 for context. It says, And the Lord... See how the word Lord is spelled with the little capitals O-R-D? That tells you the underlying Hebrew is the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav hey. It says in the New Testament, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord, Yeshua, that Yeshua is the Lord. He's the same Lord that we read across the pages of Leviticus 23 and other Old Testament chapters. The Lord spoke to Moses. Normally, in biblical Hebrew, if you're going to talk to somebody, the verb's going to be said. Just simple action. When you see the word spoke, 
The word spoke is a piel verb and it's one of strong emotion. It's one of pounding the podiums. It's one of the professors saying, would you listen up? This is on the test. Yeah, it's one of those. Spoke to Moses saying, see that word saying? In Hebrew, that's lemur. That is the way in biblical Hebrew you show a quote. There are no quotation marks. This is how you say these words came out of God's own lips. And what does Psalm 89.34 say? My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. This is how you know what the Lord himself spoke. Saying, speak to the children of Israel. Why doesn't it say, speak to Israel? It's a term. The children of Israel is a broader term, and it includes the mixed multitudes who were Gentiles, who were grafted in by what? By faith. We talked at the Passover Seder about putting the blood on the doorposts and lintels of the house and making a special character, and that is the letter chet, which is the letter in Hebrew that stands for life. Whoever put the blood on the doorposts and lintels, whether they were Jew or Gentile, were delivered. The Lord passed over those houses. Whoever did not put the blood on the doorposts and lintel didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile, the firstborn died. God does not care who your earthly parents are. He cares about your heart. Do you love him? Do you believe in him? Do you put your faith in him? If so, according to Ephesians chapter 2, you are now part of the children of Israel, part of the commonwealth of Israel. So speak to the children of Israel. That includes the physical children and the spiritual children. And say to them, the feasts of the Lord. Got to stop there. The word feast is not correct. The Hebrew word is moedim. A moed is an appointment. God set these appointments that he would interact with mankind personally and bodily through our Messiah Yeshua. So that's why it doesn't say the feasts of Israel or the feasts of the Jews. They're the feasts of the Lord. They're his appointments. Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Holy means set apart unto God, different from the world. And convocation is a gathering together to rehearse. So God tells us right up front, these are prophetic events that teach Messiah's first and second coming. And he reiterates, these are my feasts, my appointed times, my appointments. When you make an appointment with a doctor, you keep it. When God makes an appointment with mankind, he keeps them. That's why in verse 4, it says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Passover begins at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What time did Messiah die? 3 o'clock. He was buried on leavened bread, raised at first fruits. If you move any of these, say, let's just move them to the weekend so that they're more convenient. Then they stop teaching about Messiah's first and second coming. That's why whatever day of the week they fall on, here we are. Okay, the feast we're celebrating today begins in verse 9. Verses 4 through 8 are about Passover and unleavened bread. We had our Passover Seder on Friday night. Saturday we were in unleavened bread. Today we're still in unleavened bread, but today's a special day. 
It says, verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, What's that word saying again? A quote. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Again, we see the word speak. It's important to God. He's emphasizing it. When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So the first fruits of the barley that come in, because that's the first fruits at the time of Passover is barley. Do you bring a sheaf of grain or do you bring a stalk of grain? A sheaf. What's the difference between a stalk and a sheaf? A stalk is one, a sheaf is a bundle. And it says, verse 11, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. So when the Lord accepts that sheaf, it's representative, He accepts the entire harvest as being dedicated to Him. Verse 11, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. I get lots of emails every year. Wayne, why is first fruits always on Sunday? Because that's the day after the Sabbath. So God put Passover on the 14th. Whatever day of the week it falls on, Passover is the 14th. Unleavened bread begins the 15th, whatever day of the week. But first fruits is not tied to a number on the calendar, it's tied to the day after the Sabbath. It is not a Sabbath day. On the first day of unleavened bread, we can do no work. On the eighth day of unleavened bread, we can do no work. But first fruits, we can work. Why? Why? What's that? It's not I Sabbath, but why? It ties back to the resurrection. Messiah died at 4 p.m. on on 3 p.m. on Thursday. Three hours later, he's in the ground. They have not had time to put all the ointment and stuff on the body to prepare it for burial. There wasn't time. They washed it, they wrapped it in strips of linen, put it in the tomb. So they've got to come back and put all the burial spices on. But can they come on the first day of unleavened bread, which is a high Sabbath? No, they cannot. Can they come on the next day, which is the weekly Sabbath? No, they cannot. That's why they come early on the first day of the week, and Messiah has arisen. What did Messiah do on the first day of unleavened bread, the high Sabbath? He rested in the tomb. On the weekly Sabbath, the next day, he rested in the tomb. If the first day of the week here, first fruits, had been a Sabbath day, would he have arisen, or would he have rested in the tomb? So God knew from the creation of the world that Messiah would arise on the third day. He was crucified on Thursday. He was raised on the first day of the week early in the morning. So God did not make this day a day of no work because Messiah would not break the Sabbath. I hear a question from Go to Meeting. The body corrupts on the fourth day, that's true. But he said in Matthew chapter 12 that he would be in the grave three days and three nights and would arise on the third day. So he's not going to be there a fourth day. His prophecy would fail. That scripture in Psalms that says you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. 
in that scripture in the Psalms that says you'll not allow your holy one to see corruption, which was Rachel's point. That's what the ancients taught is that for three days, the body doesn't stink too bad, but on the fourth day, whoo-hoo. What did they say when he was raising Lazarus from the dead? Lord, by now he stinks. <laughs> yeah. Okay, back to the scripture. Leviticus chapter 23, we're up to verse 12. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain, until the same day that you brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. How long are we supposed to observe this appointed time? Forever. Yes, ma'am. So in the new heaven and new earth. Thousand year reign. Yes. Good observation. The answer is yes. Okay. I know, I know. People always ask me, are there animals in heaven? And I say, well, there's at least white horses. All right. Let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Another question. Another question. Go ahead. So sorry. That 14 that says you shall neither eat bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain. Right. So is that just, are we talking all grain this week? We're talking all grains from the new crop. Yeah. So the very first reaping of the new crop, a sheaf goes to the Lord. And until you do that, you can't eat it. Does that encourage people to bring the first sheaf? <laughs> it does. Yeah. There's the stick and carrot approach, you know. If you like to go hungry, okay. But, no. So this is why... Messiah arises on the Feast of First Fruits. How, does, how is he described in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits of the resurrection? In Leviticus 23, let's just look at another verse. Verse 22. From verses 1 to 21, we talk about the Sabbath in the first four appointed times. Passover when he died, unleavened bread when he was buried, first fruits when he arose, and the Feast of Weeks when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the church. And then you have this odd verse, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning for your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then the next verse is back to the fall festivals. Why do we have a verse stuck in the middle that's about how you reap the fields? Because it's prophetic about the church age and about the resurrection. The first resurrection is in three parts. The harvest is in three parts. The first fruits, the main harvest, and the gleanings. For the resurrection, Messiah is the first fruits and those that arose with him. In Revelation 4.1, we have the main harvest. And then in Revelation 20, we have the gleanings. So it is about bringing people into the kingdom, getting people saved by faith in our Messiah, Yeshua. 
Okay, now let's go to Exodus chapter 34. I'm trying not to give away all the endings at the beginning, but you know me. I lack impulse control. Exodus 34, 18. You all know Exodus comes before Leviticus, right? Yeah, go ahead. Everyone who's raising grain would be bringing a stock of grain. So there would be a lot of grain being brought to the temple that day. Yeah, he's going to be busy. And Melanie's saying, what was the question? Did everybody bring a sheaf of their new grain, or was it just one? And the answer is, everybody would bring a sheaf of the new grain. Why would they all be going up to Jerusalem? Because it's festival time. They're required to be there. In fact, that's what we're going to read here in Exodus 34, verse 18. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. In the appointed time in the month of Aviv, it should be Aviv, A-V-I-V, not A-B-I-B. Aviv means spring. For in the month of Aviv, you came out from Egypt. So Passover unleavened bread and first fruits must be in that first month called in Hebrew Aviv or in Aramaic Nisan. This year, there is an extra calendar month inserted called Adar Beit. The reason they have to do that periodically is if not, since the biblical year is shorter than the calendar year, pretty soon Passover would be in the winter time instead of the spring. So if you've ever wondered why they put in an extra month now and then, is to keep Passover in the spring. Then verses 22 to 24. And you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in a year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. In other words, if Israel had kept these appointed times of the Lord as God commanded, they would never have gone into captivity. They would not have been conquered by the Romans. They would not have been conquered by the Babylonians or the Assyrians. God would have protected them and made them safe in their land. What's my point? Does God care about these appointed times? Indeed, he does. Wayne, could you answer some of those questions that came up? Because inquiring minds out here want to know, please. Which questions? questions? On your, they're on your machine. Oh, chat. Oh, there's some Thank you. three red chat questions out here. Okay. 
Luke says, Wayne, I'm still a little confused. Are we not to eat bread or grain or corn for a week? The answer is no. That's not what it means. We only eat uh, matzah, which is unleavened bread. Or we cannot eat until the sheaf offering is made. If this requirement not to eat the grain before the sheaf offering is brought applies only when you live in the land of Israel. Since you and I live outside of the land, we don't have to worry about bringing that sheaf up to the temple. I hope that answers that question. Cassandra says, should we not eat corn during unleavened bread based on Leviticus 23.14? The answer is we should eat corn. Corn products tend to be unleavened. Wheat products tend to be leavened. So corn tortillas, things like that, they're good to eat. And Kazan says, a friend told me Messiah was not resting while in the tomb, but went to hell to preach. Okay. <clears throat> the soul went to Sheol to preach, but where was the body? Lying in the grave. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Penny. I hadn't seen the questions, the little red marks. Okay. Deuteronomy chapters. Okay, or not. Please give us a Sorry. Go on. Go ahead. Whoever's first, go ahead. I'm sure that Jesus' soul went to Sheol. I'm sorry? Give us a scripture that Jesus' soul went to Sheol to preach. Um, okay, let's see. I'm looking to... Let's see. Um, what was the question? The question is, give me a scripture, a verse that says that his soul went to Sheol to preach. First Peter, three. First Peter chapter 3. Yeah. Is that where you got the keys? <laughs> uh, okay, here we are. Verse 18, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Messiah also suffered once, that's the crucifixion, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That in prison is referring to Sheol. They were just a little more creative here who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So in verse 19 when it says, He went and preached to the spirits in prison, that is when he went to Sheol while the body was resting in the grave to preach to those that were in the, in the grave. Thank you. You're welcome. Edmund, you had a question. Yeah, um, you, were, you were saying just before that all the Moedim, if they kept them, uh, they were, you know, um, the Babylonian whatever wouldn't have happened and what have you. Right, the um, captivities would never happened. In fact, in fact, it says in Jeremiah that if they'd only kept the Sabbath, um, if they'd only kept the Sabbath, let alone the others, the, the king would have remained on the throne and... and um, Although they would have been, I understand it as if, although they would have been under the overlordship of the Babylonians, 
Jerusalem would not have been destroyed. You're absolutely and correct. Yeah, by the time that scripture comes up in Jeremiah 16 and 17, the northern kingdom of Israel has already gone into the Assyrian captivity, and at least one of the waves of the Babylonian captivity has already happened. And God is saying, okay, you wouldn't do that, but if you'll at least keep the Sabbath, then I won't totally destroy the nation and cut off the Davidic throne. And they thumbed their nose at God and said, no, we'd rather walk in sin. And that's when not only was the city of Jerusalem totally destroyed, but there was not a single person left alive. Not a one. You're right, Edmund. Thank you for that. I see another red one out here. Okay. Let me come back to this other view so I might catch a red. Okay. We're up in Deuteronomy, aren't we? Deuteronomy 16. For those of you who don't know me, I love questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Even if sometimes you get a blank stare. <laughs> I get some of the funniest questions. We teach Revelation, and it says, the thunders roared, and God said not to write it down. I get all kinds of emails. What did the thunder say? I don't know, he didn't write it down. It wasn't there. Okay. So those are some of the harder questions. But Deuteronomy 16, every one of these looks into the Feast of First Fruits, that appointed time, is going to teach us something about Messiah. And when we get to the Gospels, I want to try and tie it all in. But in Deuteronomy 16, we have verses 16 to 17. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That phrase, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, includes Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. That's why all the farmers are there having brought their first fruits with them to bring to the temple. They're required to be there anyway. At the Feast of Weeks, that's Shavuot or Pentecost. Pentecost is just from the Greek. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, Messiah was born at the Feast of Tabernacles. Why was he born at the Feast of Tabernacles? Joseph and Mary lived where? In Nazareth. But there was a decree that in order to be taxed, they had to go back to their ancestral home, which was Bethlehem. From Nazareth to Bethlehem is a long journey. So since you have eight years to complete it, do you just go an extra trip down to Bethlehem or do you do it when you're taking another mandatory trip anyway? They were going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, so they went to Bethlehem to be registered. Comes time for Mary to deliver. There's no room in the inn. Why is there no room in the inn? The inn's for travelers. Because all Israel has come up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem can't hold them all. So there's three what are called daughter cities, Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem, where the pilgrims stay. This was a great kindness to Mary because the inns where they would have stayed is just one big open room. Can you imagine this virgin girl giving birth in the midst of a thousand strangers? No. So... There just happens to be a sukkah outside. It's not a barn. 
You don't have a baby in the midst of animal feces and such things. There's a sukkah. And he says, you can use our sukkah. And when it says they laid the baby in the manger, the manger was the food box in the sukkah where you kept the fruits and vegetables. But I digress. I'm sorry. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. That means when you came up to the festivals, you're bringing food for you and your family. You also have to include some for the poor so that everyone can celebrate, even the most very poor. It says, every man shall give as he's able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. Now to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 9, verse 14. Numbers chapter 9, verse 14. For those of you that are listening, probably in cassette tape land going, I'm not Jewish, why do I care? Let's read Numbers chapter 9, verse 14. And if a stranger dwells among you, that is the wild olive tree that has been grafted in, and would do the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and the native of the land. And again, some people use the phrase unleavened bread to refer to everything, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Some call it all Passover. Some call it all the spring festivals. They're all included in the term. Okay, that's what I want you to know about the feast as it was done historically. Now I want you to go to Matthew. And I want us to see how the Lord fulfills it. Matthew. First, I guess I want to go to Matthew 12. <clears throat> Verse 39. Before we read the narrative of the events, let's see the prophecy that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Are you Matthew 12, 39? But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These are words of prophecy. What does Deuteronomy 18 tell us about a prophet whose words do not come to pass? That they're not of God, they're not a true prophet. So what if Messiah said, I'm going to be in the ground three days and three nights, but he's only there two days and two nights? That would mean he's a false prophet. So when people say, well, he died on Good Friday and was raised on Easter Sunday, I go, oh, do you know what you're saying? Hold up three fingers. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. How many nights are in between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Two. So that teaching itself says that he's a false prophet and not the Messiah. So when did he die? 
Let's talk about the chronology. Take out your pen and paper if you got one and let's write out the chronology. Relating it like we did at the Passover Seder, starting with the 10th day of the first month, not January, the first biblical month, which is Aviv or Nisan, the month we're in right now. It comes in our March to April. On the 10th day of the first month, they brought a male lamb into the house to examine it for four days to see if they could find a spot or blemish. It had to be tamim, which means without spot or blemish. That very same day is the day that the church calls Palm Sunday, the Messiah rode into Jerusalem. The lamb is examined for four days to see if it has a spot. Messiah was questioned by the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Hellenists, the Romans. Everybody got a chance to try and find a spot. And what did they find? He was spotless. So on the 14th day, which is the day we call Passover, they take one of those lambs that's representative of all Israel and take it up to the Temple Mount. And it's bound to the horns of the altar at 9 a.m. What time did they nail Yeshua to the tree? 9 a.m. That lamb is bound to the altar, the horns of the altar, for six hours until 3 p.m. Messiah hung on that tree for six hours until 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., the priest kills that lamb that's bound to the altar with the words, It is finished. Messiah dies with the words, it is finished. The lamb then, they roast and get it ready for the Seder. I told you about that. The ancients tell us it had to be roasted with its head up and its arms outstretched on a pomegranate stick. I'm not kidding. That's the way it was done. And its intestines were wrapped around the head like a crown. That's the way they roasted the lamb in Egypt. Do you see any pictures? Yes. Yeah, me too. So Messiah, he's dead at 3 p.m. They stick a spear into his side because they can't believe he's already dead. And what comes out? Blood and water mixed together, which means he was dead. How did he die so much quicker than the two thieves who were crucified with him? He had been beaten with the cat of nine tails, which are leather straps with bone, metal, and glass in them that just rips the flesh off the back. He would have bled to death. And he had to die within the time frame that had been predicted. Because by 6 p.m., just three hours after he dies, they have to have the body down. They have to have it washed. They have it wrapped in strips and linen, laid in the cloth, the stone but across, and they have to get home. Because they have to have the Passover Seder. Which the disciples are now going to be going, we've always wondered why we dip bread in this and why we dip bitter herbs in that. Why do we do these things? Messiah just told us yesterday. He explained the elements of the Passover Seder. So they put him in the tomb that had never been used before, which means it's clean, it's not unclean. They put a stone across the door and put seals on it. How many of you have been to the garden tomb in Jerusalem? I started, I guess my first visit there was in 1992. And they said then, 
This isn't the tomb, but it's like the tomb, so you can get an idea. In the last couple of years, they have found where the Roman seals were applied to the door. So now you can say, it's not like the tomb. That was the tomb. There are also characters inscribed on it, which were symbols of the believers of the first century, indicating that they believed that's where the burial happened, and I believe it too. So he's in the ground for how long? Three days and three nights. But he arises on the third day, so it's not 72 hours, but it's Thursday to Friday, Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Sunday. On the first day of the week, it says in the Gospels, after the Sabbath, he arises. So let's get back to Matthew to 26 and read about how it happens. Of course. Um, Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Joseph and Joseph of Arimathea were both members of the Sanhedrin. And they are said to have taken the body and, and prepared it. Right. So would they have had servants clean the body for them? Of course. So that they would be clean for Passover. Right. You don't think the rich people are going to do it themselves? No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how do we know the Shroud of Trends, not the burial cloth? It's one solid cloth. It's one solid cloth. The Bible says he was wrapped in strips of linen, and the face cloth is separate. If you see the Shroud of Turin, you've got the entire head in the same cloth. So there wasn't a separate face cloth. And there's pagan coins, Roman coins on the eyes, to pay the pagan boatman to take him across the river Styx. You think the disciples did that? No. There's another significance of what Karen mentioned that these two, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, were members of the Sanhedrin, and that is the Sanhedrin was not a unanimous vote to convict him. That's extremely significant, because under Jewish law, if the vote is unanimous, the prisoner is set free, because they figure never will 70 people agree on anything. So it was fixed. So it was not a unanimous vote. There were some who voted no for the crucifixion. But Matthew 26, verse 30, here we go. Up to verse 29 is the Seder that was the Last Supper. Wayne? Yeah, go ahead, Brad. Before you start, just what you read about Jonah, three days and three nights, right. the comparison, um, the, the popular... When I was a kid, Jonah basically had a campfire and roasted marshmallows or whatever while he waited the three days. Uh, did Jonah actually die, or did he, was he spit up after three days and lived the whole time? It says in the book of Jonah that he died. That's what. Let's turn to the book of Jonah. I can say it, but make me show it to you. Yep. Yeah. Like Brad said, roasting marshmallows in the, the fish of the belly. Yeah, no, it didn't happen that way. In chapter 2 of Jonah. First one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, 
I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, referring to the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. That requires resurrection. The water surrounded me even to my soul, which means to my death. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So when it says, even to my soul, that means he died. There, Brad's right. There's false teachings out there that say Messiah didn't die on the cross. He just fainted. And when they put him in the cool of the tomb, he revived. Pushed the stone away, grabbed Mary Magdalene, and moved to the south of France and had lots of kids. Ever seen the movie The Da Vinci Code? That's the, the Merovingian dynasty origin according to these false teachers. Okay, back to Matthew 26. Through verse 29 is the Seder that we had, which was the Last Supper. Verse 30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Back in those days, the Mount of Olives was not in Jerusalem. The city limits of Jerusalem ended with the Kidron Valley, which separates Jerusalem and the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Today is part of it. When they sung him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Where do they go in the Mount of Olives? Do they go to Bethany or Bethphage? No. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane in English comes from the Hebrew Gat Shmoni, which means an olive press. In Isaiah 53, it says, he was crushed for our iniquities. To get the olive oil out of the olive, you put it in the press and you crush it. Olive oil pictures the Holy Spirit. And Messiah, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, is saying, I must be crushed like those olives are crushed so that the Holy Spirit can come forth and dwell in the hearts of those that are saved. Verse 31, then Yeshua said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. This night. He knows the night he's going to be arrested. For it is written, it's written in Zechariah chapter 13. I will strike the shepherd, that's the crucifixion of Messiah. And the sheep of the flock, that's the disciples, the apostles, will be scattered. So he said, you're all going to flee, you're all going to flee from me says, but after I have been raised. Wait a minute, if he's going to die, what does he mean after I've been raised? After he's resurrected. He tells the apostles over and over again, I'm going to be resurrected on the third day, but they still don't understand that he's really going to die. How will you recognize Messiah when you see him? From the flat forehead, banging it on the wall. But after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Did he do that? Did he meet? Peter and those, when they were out in the fishing boat, catching nothing and saying, throw your net on the other side? Yeah. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. He just said, Lord, you're wrong. 
That's called chutzpah. Or more importantly, pride and arrogance. Never the right, of, the right attitude to take to the Lord. Yeshua said to him, As surely I say to you this night before the, co the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. There weren't any roosters in Jerusalem. Chickens are not unclean to eat, but they're dirty animals, so they weren't permitted in Jerusalem. So it's referring not to a rooster. It's referring to the priest who comes to the southwest corner of the temple to blow the trumpet to summon the other priest to come up to the temple to begin the daily services. They have found that stone that they used to stand on up there to blow that shofar and trumpets to call in the priests recently. Okay. So that's what he's saying. Before daylight, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. How long is this before they flee like chickens? Yeah, not very long at all. The intention was good, but the bodies are weak. Then Yeshua came with them to a place called Gethsemane, Gatshmoni, and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were those? John and James. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. You guys realize Peter, James, and John, these are all cousins of Messiah, right? This is family. Why is he sorrowful and deeply distressed? Is it for what's going to happen to him or what would happen to us if he didn't die in our place? Mm, think about that. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, listen to the prayer. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. People have told me all my life, Messiah lost faith. He didn't believe in God anymore. That's not what this says. This is for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is it possible? Is there another way of salvation? He wants them to understand he has to die. And he's going to die this very day. It's not possible for the cup to pass or God's plan fails. Mankind's not redeemed. Satan wins. I've read the end of the book. That don't happen. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Why? They're tired. They just had four cups of wine. It's dark. And he prays a long time. And said to Peter, what? could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if, circle that if, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, was it possible for the cup to pass and mankind to be saved another way? It was not. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. 
Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Those sinners, by the way, refer to the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they were ultra-righteous, that God loves them above all people. What does Messiah say? Sinners. Sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. Which Judas? Iscariot. With a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given him a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Yeshua and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Does anybody want to yell hypocrite right about now? Yeah. Did Messiah know that it was Judas Iscariot that was betraying him? Sure he did. Was it prophesied he would be betrayed by his own dear friend? Yeah. Was it prophesied he would be betrayed for so many pieces of silver? Yeah. But Yeshua said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Yeshua, his name's Peter, by the way, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. His name's Malchus, by the way. Why did Peter have a sword? Because the Lord told him to sell whatever he had and buy a sword. Bring a sword. And then he uses it. And what does Messiah say? But Yeshua said, and put your sword in its place. Can you imagine Peter's face? You told me to buy it and bring it. You won't let me use it. What's the point? Did Messiah get taken by the arresting officers because he couldn't defend himself? No. He could have defended himself, but he went willingly. Because if that cup had not been drunk from, you and I would be eternally lost. It says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How many angels is that? All I can say is, it's a bunch. 72,000. It's a bunch. But look at verse 54. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? The prophecy said he'd be betrayed by a friend for so many pieces of silver that he would be crucified, that he would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Where's the prophecy that he'd be pierced in his hands and his feet? Psalm 22. Let's go back and look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David, who was a prophet as well as king thousand years before Messiah was born. About exactly a thousand years before Messiah was born. Look at verse 1. In Hebrew it says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Yeshua is God. Can he forsake himself? No. He cries this out from the crucifixion tree because of the disciples there. He's a rabbi. When a rabbi throws out a verse, the students put it in context. And the context is, look what David wrote a thousand years ago. Yeshua's been telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. On the third day, I'm going to rise. And they still don't get it. But then he puts it in context. We'll go back to verse 12. Psalm twenty-two, twelve. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. That doesn't get the Hebrew just quite right. They're tearing pieces of flesh out of his body with their mouth. Like you would think demonic possession. Yeah. Like a raging and roaring lion. Raging and roaring lions, they don't roar until what? Till they catch and tear the prey. It'd be nice if they would start roaring when they're 100 yards away from the gazelle so it could run away, but they wait until the tearing has begun. Look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. If you ever get nailed to the tree by your hands and your feet, you'll know what he means. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. What happened when they put in the spear? Out came blood and water. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws, which means he is so, so thirsty. But yet when they brought him sour wine to drink, he refused it. Why? Because he had just said at the Last Supper, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in paradise. So as thirsty as he was, he was not going to break his own word. He says, you have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The word dogs there refers to the Roman soldiers. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. That's talking about the Jewish leadership that are crying, crucify him, crucify him. So who is responsible for the death of Messiah? Just the Jews and the Gentiles. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, we get a wrong picture from that. We think of a nail being driven through the palm. If you drive nails through the palm and the way the human body hangs on it, it would just tear right through. The nails are through the wrist because you have all the bones in the wrist to keep the nails from going. But in Hebrew, the word yod, which is hand, goes from the tip of the fingers to the elbow. So that, in Hebrew, is the hand. And by the same token, the Feet, they're actually nailed through the ankles. But let's keep reading. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Why? Because of the whipping. They tore the flesh off. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. What does Matthew 27 say? We'll find out when we get there. So let's go back to Matthew. We're in chapter 26. Yes, ma'am. In one teaching, they ask, why would they cast lots for the garments? If they, if they had no value. If they had If he was so poor, his clothing was worth nothing, why would you cast lots for it? The answer is, it was still a robe. And many people back in those days only had one. And the Roman soldiers, they got to keep whatever they could take from the victims. So... 
hey, it was a robe. It was a piece of clothing. And that outer robe was in one piece, and they didn't want to tear it. They say that robe is in Trier, Germany. I've been to the Catholic Church at Trier, Germany, which claims to have it. And they only put it on display every 40 or 45 years or something for a little while. And I wasn't fortunate enough to be there at the time. But they have pictures, of course, you could buy. Is it the real robe? I don't know. I don't know what a 2,000-year-old piece of cloth would look like. But let's get back to Matthew. We're in 26. Somewhere. Oh, yeah, over here, okay. Verse 54, that's where we were. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? God never ceases to amaze me with the detail of his prophecy. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, wanted to put Messiah to death. If they had put him to death, how would they have killed him? By stoning. But for this brief period of time, they were mad at Rome. And they refused to sit in the special chamber on the Temple Mount called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which was the only place from which, under Jewish law, they could give a death sentence. By the time we come to the death of Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, they're back to meeting in the chamber of Hewn Stone, but for this brief period of time, they can't issue a decree to stone him. That's why they take him to the Romans. And David knew that a thousand years before. Wow. Verse 54, how then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Yeshua said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. Is he trying to lay a little bit of a guilt trip on them? Yeah. Give them a chance to realize that what they're doing is so wrong. Because he's right, they could have arrested him in the temple. He was there yesterday, he would have been there tomorrow. Why wouldn't they arrest him in the temple? They were afraid of the crowds. Afraid of the crowds. So here it's about midnight. Everybody's asleep. They figure it's a safe time. The crowds, the crowds pretty much supported the common people. It was the leadership that managed to stir up a few around them. It was by far less than a majority. Verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Didn't he just tell them they were going to do that? And they said, oh, no, we won't. There they go running. And those who had laid hold of Yeshua led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. What time did I say it is? It's about midnight. Jewish law forbids having a trial at night. Are they interested in the law? No. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. 
Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Yeshua to put him to death. Please note, what kind of testimony did they seek? False testimony. Why? Because they had no reason, no charges. He had done nothing wrong. So verse 60 says, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. People go, that's contradictory. No, it's not. You have to have two people tell the same lie. Lots of people were willing to tell a lie, but they weren't willing to tell the second lie because they wrongly believed that God would only hold the second person responsible. So they thought, we can lie and get away with it, and whoever confirms my lie, that's the one God's going to judge. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, but they thought it did. But that's what it means, they found none, none to confirm a lie. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And I priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What did Isaiah 53 say? As a sheep before its shears is silent. What is it these men testify against you? But Yeshua kept silent. And I priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. That compels an answer. He has to answer. Yeshua said to him, it is as you said. Put that in modern English. Yes, I am. Those people who keep telling me he never claimed to be the Messiah don't understand. He's saying right here, yes, I am. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel chapter 7, which they recognize right away that he's telling us he is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God that's going to come. They didn't know when. You and I know it's very soon for the battle of Armageddon to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Yes. He's also telling them you're on the wrong end. He's also telling them you're on the wrong end. That's right. If you see him coming, you're not coming with him. Exactly. If you see him coming, you're not coming with him, which means you weren't saved. That's right. Uh, do you think they're going to take that well? Yeah, probably not. Then the high priest tore his clothes. The high priest is forbidden from tearing his clothes. He violates the commandment of God and rips his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. Why, what does he mean he's spoken blasphemy? He understands. Yeshua just said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, just like you said, and one of these days, you're going to know it. He says, what further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you haven't heard his blasphemy. In Jewish court, you cannot take a confession from the defendant and use it they're not considered a credible witness. So again, they violate their own law. Verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Why don't they say, then stone him? Because they're not sitting in the chamber of hewn stone. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Was that prophesied? It sure was. Others struck him with the palms of their hands. Was that prophesied? Yes, it was. 
saying, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who's the one who struck you? Could Messiah have told them? Of course he could have. Why didn't he? He would have been obeying them, and he was not willing to do that. Do you think it would have made any difference? No. But again, they're not unanimous. Verse 69, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Yeshua of Galilee. Why does she add of Galilee? Yeshua was a common name. Remember Barabbas? His first name is Yeshua. That's why they call him by his last name. Barabbas means son of the father. So when Pontius Pilate offers them the true Messiah, or Yeshua, son of the father, he's offering the true Messiah or the false Messiah. Who do they take? The false Messiah. Do you think that was also meant as an insult? Of course it's an insult. Galilee instead of Yeshua of Nazareth. Yeah. Because can any good thing come out of the Galilee? Yeah. Of course it's been as an insult. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. <laughs> you know what, though? Can you tell the difference between somebody from, oh, let's say, New York City or somebody from Atlanta, Georgia, when they talk? In Israel, you could tell the difference between the speech of a Galilean and one from Jerusalem. <laughs> So he may say, no, I, I'm not from Galilee, but the speech is pretty obvious. When he'd gone out, of the, out to the gateway, another girl who saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also is with Yeshua of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, meaning on the name of God. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you're also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then they began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, the priest sounded the trumpet to call the other priest to duty. Messiah said he, Peter would deny him how many times? Three times. How many times did Peter deny him? Three times. And Peter remembered the word of Yeshua who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, how early in the morning is it? It's about 6 a.m. Yes, ma'am? If he had said, yes, I was with this man, he would have been in there at the court too with them saying, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah, his life would have been in jeopardy. Remember, he said, even if I die with you, I won't deny you. Well, that's why the Lord said, yeah, spirit's willing, but body's weak. So when morning came at 6 a.m., give or take, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Yeshua to put him to death. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. It's still the 14th of Aviv, or Nisan, the day of Passover. So he had the Seder as the 14th began, was arrested about midnight, had his trial in the middle of the night. Then they bring him to Pontius Pilate as soon as the sun comes up in the morning. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, 
was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Had that been prophesied? Yes. Even what they would use the money for. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, you betrayed him. God's going to hold you responsible. Not my problem. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. This is where people get a little bit confused. It says in the book of Acts that he fell down on a, on a stump and broke open and his intestines fell out. And here it says he hanged himself. And people go, so one has to be wrong. What's wrong is when you and I hear hang, we think of the old west with the rope and gallows. In biblical times, to be hanged was to be impaled. Impaled on a stick. In a case of Haman, they, would, they impaled him with the stake and then hauled his body up 75 feet in the air. It was a really long stick for all the birds to just have a, have a good time. So that's what happens. He falls on a stump to be impaled and breaks open. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, Look, it's the chief priest. Said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. They were used to pay for a murder. They're the ones who are committing the murder. But, okay. Let God be the judge. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. That had been prophesied. Therefore, that field has been called Acheldama, it says in the King James. Here it says in English, the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Yes, I know, that quote's from Zechariah. But it's from the prophets. The Old Testament in the Hebrew published Bible is broken into three parts. The Torah, which is the law of Moses. The Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then the writings, which are the other books. So some people call the entire book of the prophets Isaiah, some Zechariah, some Jeremiah. They just mean the book of the prophets. Verse 11. Now Yeshua stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Yeshua said to him, It is as you say. Meaning what in English? Yes, I am. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. The Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not one word. So the governor marveled greatly. Again, like the sheep before the shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. Why did they do this? Rome wanted what's called Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome. They want taxes, and they want peace in the territory. So if it makes the people happy, they'll release one prisoner. They'll probably get caught again, put to death next time, but they'll release one prisoner. 
And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Again, his full name was Yeshua Bar Abba, which means Yeshua, salvation, son of the Father. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Yeshua, who's called Messiah? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Remember, his wife had had a dream, came to him and said, God told me I have nothing to do with this, why this just man? So he knows that Yeshua has not committed any crime. It was because of envy. What kind of envy? People are following him and not them. Remember how he would come to Messiah and say, how come your disciples bowed their knee to our authority? Yeah. So weren't they Sadducees and they didn't believe in the resurrection and then when Lazarus was raised, it was a problem for them? That's true for the Sadducees, yeah. The Sadducees only believe the first five books of the Bible, those written by Moses. It's Isaiah that told us clearly about resurrection they reject anything written by the prophets. That's why they didn't believe in resurrection. But the scribes and Pharisees do. So Messiah manages to get him fighting over that issue in a while. That's pretty cool. But you're right. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Yeshua. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? What's he expect the answer to be? Yeshua. But they said, Barabbas. When it says he was a notorious prisoner, he was a very violent man, and the Jewish leadership wanted him to die too, but they wanted Yeshua to die more. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Yeshua who's called Messiah? Why does he keep saying that? He thinks that's going to cause them to hesitate. Instead, it makes them more angry. They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Now we have a problem. Pax Romanus. What happens if the people start to riot and it gets back to Caesar? Then Pontius Pilate's going to get crucified. So as the crowd begins to flare up into a riot, he says, okay, all right. It says, but when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, what's a tumult? What's that? An insurrection, a riot. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. In other words, I won't put him to death. You do it yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Might I suggest you never say something like that. Then he released Barabbas to them. When he had scourged Yeshua, he delivered him to be crucified. He scourged Yeshua because he thought that might draw some compassion from the crowd screaming, crucify him, but it didn't. Then the soldiers of the governor took Yeshua into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. That praetorium is still here, at least the floor of it. On the floor are inscribed the rules for the game they're about to play with Messiah. 
They could only play it on a man condemned to die because they rarely survived the game. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, have you seen the tree from which the crown of thorn comes? The thorns are about yea so long. Imagine a crown of that being beaten down on your head, how the blood would flow. When they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. Why are they striking him on the head? Because the crown of thorns is up there driving him deeper and deeper into the skull. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. After the beating and all that's been done to him, he can hardly walk. He is not carrying a cross like you see in the movies and on TV. He's carrying the cross beam. They would take the cross beam, nail the prisoner to the beam, and drop the beam on the top of whatever stump was tall enough to hang the guy in, and then nail the feet, the ankles, into the tree. They would do that for fun because when you drop him from two or three feet down and the crossbeam hits the top of that tree, how it's going to just yank all the bones out of joint. You guys are looking at me like, this is horrible. Yes, this is horrible. Talking about a loincloth, which they will take away before they hang him. They crucified people, male or female, totally naked to humiliate. And it was terrible. So verse 32, now as they came out, they found him in a Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. That's the crossbar. The cross the Messiah died on did not look like the crosses people wear. It's like a T. The crossbar gets dropped on the tree stump. And when you come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say place of a skull, that is on the Temple Mount. Please know that. It's on the Temple Mount. It's on Mount Moriah. The very place where Abraham brought Isaac at the command of God to offer him there. Where Abraham saw behind him in the future Messiah die in place of Isaac. It looks like a skull even today. And the reason it looks like a skull is that's where they excavated the limestone stones that they used to build the temple. He was the cornerstone the builders rejected. There's reason why he was crucified there. It's just outside the Damascus gate of the city of Jerusalem. Where did Paul meet Messiah? He went out the Damascus gate and there was Messiah at the place where he had been crucified. Okay, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. When he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Because he said he wouldn't drink wine again until he drinks it with us in the kingdom. So he wouldn't drink it. This was not a kindness to him. This is a cruelty. You're so, you're so dying of thirst. Let's see you break your word to satisfy your thirst. And he wouldn't do it. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. That's the prophet David. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's from Psalm 22. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. So it's 9 a.m. 
when they nail him to the tree. They put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. The accusation that's nailed to the cross was not unique to him. It's to every condemned prisoner so that people who come by and are horrified by what's happening will say, I better not do that anymore. But Pilate said he committed no crime. So that's why he put on the cross, this is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. Because he said that's why they want him to die. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. That's Isaiah 53, 9. Why were those guys being crucified? Because they were criminals. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Could he have? He could have. But then where would you and I be? Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe him. Would they have? Not a chance. The scriptures are pretty clear. They knew he was. That's why they want to kill him. What did Messiah say in a parable about they killed all the servants and then the owner of the vineyard said, let me send my son and them he will respect. They'll respect him, but no. Nah. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from noon till 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Isn't that when you expect the, the land to be totally dark is from noon to 3 p.m.? No. Was God showing his anger? Yeah. And about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Yeshua cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22.1. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man's calling for Elijah. They weren't real Bible students, those people. Would you abbreviate names in Israel like we do today with nicknames? Richard might be called Rick or David might be called Dave. Give me one example. Who is the star of the book of Esther, the male lead. Boaz. Boaz. Boaz is Ibsen. Ibsen, one of the judges listed in the book of Judges. But what's the middle letters from Ibsen, the B and the Z, Boaz? It's a nickname. So Elijah would be called Eli. Eli. So these people... They don't recognize that this is Psalm 22. So they say immediately, verse 48, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him for drink. He's already refused it. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. Probably with a laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Boy, are they going to be surprised. And Yeshua cried out again with a loud voice. What he cries is, it is finished. At the same time, the high priest in the temple slits the throat of the lamb representing all Israel with the words, it is finished. Cried with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit, which means he died. 
Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When a Jewish father loses a child, he tears his robe from the top to the bottom. This was God saying in no uncertain terms, this was my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies did the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Let's think about it for a moment. If Yeshua is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he is, Paul says so, I'm going to show you in a few minutes. He's just a stalk. Do you wave a stalk at first fruits or a sheaf? Sheaf. That's why in verse 52, many bodies of the saints are raised when Messiah is raised. They are the other stalks in the sheaf. Yes? So is this three days later that uh, this happened? When, yes. When, when Yeshua raised again, these people uh, was resurrected also? Correct. It's on the third day on first fruits. Yeah. That's when all these saints are resurrected with Messiah. They are the first fruits. And what was the teaching of first fruits when God accepts the bundle? He accepts, he accepts the whole harvest. Yeah. Wait. Yes, Edmund. Uh, Matthew says that they were raised um, and they're out uh, in the graves outside the city on on the, when Jesus dies, and then they but they stay in the tombs until uh, uh, Sunday when they go into the city and are seen by many, according to Matthew. Um, so they're raised on on the on Good Friday. No, they're not raised until first fruits. Says that earthquake that happens happens on first fruits. He's just telling us here a little bit of the detail, then he's going to give us more of the detail later. That's why it makes sure to say, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they don't precede him. Verse 52 would make you think they do until you read verse 53. But remember when the angel comes, there's an earthquake and it rolls the stone away. That's the earthquake being described here in verse 51. Oh, I see. You put those two earthquakes together. Yeah. Uh, that one is okay, the general description and later we get the detail. Okay, I see how you do it. Yeah. Okay. Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Yeshua, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Yeshua from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Her name was Mary too, by the way. Everybody was called Mary. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Yeshua. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Yeshua. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Why? He didn't want it. You want to take it? Take it. 
Besides, the man was rich. You got to be good to rich people. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. In the book of John, it says in strips of linen. So he cuts the clean linen cloth into strips to wrap the body. And laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. If you have been to the garden tomb, you'll notice that it's a tomb that was designed to have two bodies laid in it. But only one of the two places to lay the body have ever been used. They don't hew out the place for the head until they know who's being buried because they don't know how long to make it. So one side has been used, the other side never was. And Mary Magdalene, who is there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, the next day is the 15th. So the Passover Seder that Messiah had, which was the Last Supper, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, all takes place on the 14th. So on the next day, which is the 15th, which is the first day of unleavened bread, which is a high Sabbath, that's when you have the Passover Seder, which followed the day of preparation. The day of preparation is the 14th, because that's when you kill the lamb and prepare the Seder meal. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Why are they concerned if they think he's a deceiver? Can't possibly happen, right? They're worried it's going to happen. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, as his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Remember, Pilate knows Yeshua is innocent. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Like I said, the marks from those seals are on that tomb. And there's no record anywhere of any other tomb being sealed by the Romans so it wouldn't get accidentally opened. Verse 38, now after the Sabbath is not what the Hebrew says, or the Greek either. It says now after the Sabbath, plural. They translated the Sabbath singular in your Bible because they don't want you to know that more than one Sabbath has passed. The Sabbaths are the first day of unleavened bread, which is a high Sabbath, followed by the weekly Sabbath. That's how we know he was crucified on Thursday and not Friday. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, it actually doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says, as one of the Sabbaths began to dawn. From Passover to the Feast of Weeks, you do what? You count seven Sabbaths. Okay. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So Sabbath is ending. The first day of the week begins. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. What's that mean? 
They fainted. Yeah, they fainted out of fear. These are Roman soldiers. It takes a lot to scare a Roman soldier to the point they faint, like a dead man. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Yeshua who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said. As he said means he said three days and three nights. He raises on the third day. It's the third day. He's gone. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now, when they see the place where the Lord lay, what are they going to see? Are they going to see an empty slab of stone? They're going to see the cocoon of the burial cloth. But the face cloth is folded and laying by itself. So you can see that there's no body in the grave clothes. <laughs> no. Sorry, no name given. But more than that, the face cloth is the tallit. When you bury a Jewish man, you take the seed off the tallit and you wrap his head with it. The tallit is folded nicely, laying by itself, remember? Every Jewish man folds his tallit his own way. So when they see the tallit nicely folded, they know who folded it. And believe it or not, dead people don't fold tallits. So they know he's alive. Okay. Verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. Well, that's what he told them. That he would meet him in Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Yeshua met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Yeshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So what did they tell him? There was an earthquake. The angel rolled the stone away. He wasn't there. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. What'd they give them? Shut up money. A large sum. Saying, tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. What would it mean for a Roman soldier to fall asleep on guard? Death. So that's why he says in verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Meaning we will go and admit that that's not what happened, but we paid you to lie. And that'll be okay with him. I'm betting these guards got put to death anyway. But maybe I just don't trust those scribes and Pharisees enough. So verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. But it tells us clearly that that was a lie. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Yeshua had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Give me a name. Thomas. Thomas. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What's a disciple? 
a student. What do students do? They learn. They study. Of all the nations, that means Gentiles. The Lord commands the disciples to take the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God with the gospel message and present it to the nations of the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word name is singular. Teaching them to observe what? All things that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You would think this would end the story of the resurrection, but it does not. Turn to 1 Corinthians. There's a reason 1 Corinthians 15 teaches about the rapture and the resurrection of the believers. It's because the whole chapter is about rapture and resurrection. We have about 10 minutes left, so I will hurry. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, who's he talking to when he calls them brethren? Believers, saved by faith the Messiah. Whoops, you're not there yet. Let me slow down. Therefore, brethren, moreover, brethren, I declared to you... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved if. If, if what? If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Meaning if you don't continue in your faith, then your salvation wasn't real. What's that? We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Okay, we're there. Verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. Who explained that to Paul? The Lord himself. Having been resurrected said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul had a little conversation with, mm, but, but, I, but I thought you were just a criminal and, and you were dead. And Messiah explains from the scriptures to him all that had been prophesied about his death, burial, and resurrection. That Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen by Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Cephas is transliterated from the Hebrew word for the Greek Petras. Then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains in the present, but some have fallen asleep. Meaning some have died, but Paul says most of those 500 are still alive. You can go ask any one of them. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. He means I wasn't one of his disciples when he taught. I wasn't a believer in him when he died. 
I persecuted those who believed in him until I met him. For I am the least of the apostles. An apostle is a sent one. Messiah gave him a task and said, go do it. That's to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Could you imagine? Paul was a Pharisee. He would not have touched a Gentile with a 10-foot pole. And the Lord says, you're going to go lead them all to me. Can you imagine what's going through Paul's mind? Oh, my Jewish brethren, they're not going to like this. But how do you say no to the Lord? Just ask Jonah. You don't. Okay. Yes. I think this James was the half brother. Yep. Can I swear to it? No, but I think so. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was on the way to Damascus to arrest and imprison people who believed in Messiah to put them to death. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What he means by that is by the grace of God, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm spreading the word that I tried to snuff out. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul led a lot of people to the Lord. But I labored more abundantly than they all, meaning the rest of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Meaning whether you heard the gospel from me or from Peter or James or John or one of the others, you heard it, you believed it, and you got saved. Remember we talked about the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection? There are Sadducees who've gotten saved and still don't believe in the resurrection. Paul's about to talk to them. Therefore, whether it was I or you or they, so we preached and so you believe. Verse 12, now if Messiah is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you Say that there is no resurrection of the dead. He's talking to those who claim to be believers and saying, you believe in what? You don't believe in a resurrection? How do you believe in a resurrected Messiah? He says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, the Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Messiah and we did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Some people walk away from here, they stop reading here and say, okay, he didn't arise. Oh, no, no, you, you missed the point. Keep reading. For if the dead do not rise, the Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, that's an important thing to think about. Many people think that when Messiah died on the cross, our sins were forgiven. But what did he do after he was resurrected? He took and put his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. So Paul is saying is, if he just died on the tree and was buried and is still in the ground, then he didn't accomplish salvation. He wasn't resurrected as he said he would be. He's a false prophet. 
But now he's going to tell us, yeah, but the if didn't happen. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Messiah perished if in this life only we have hope in Messiah. We're of all men the most pitiable. I mean, if he wasn't truly the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, then we who believe in him, we're in deep trouble. Verse 20, but now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. He arose on what day? Today, the feast of first fruits. He was part of the sheaf, but that's why the others were raised after him to be part of the sheaf. For since by man came death, which man was that? Adam. What did he do? He ate that which God told him not to eat. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's our Messiah Yeshua. That's why sometimes he's called the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. What does that word all mean? Everybody. Whether you're saved or not, you're going to be resurrected. If you're saved, you're going to enter into eternal life. It's been an eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with our Messiah Yeshua living in a city that is beyond belief, where gold is the paving stones for the streets. But if you're not saved, then cast alive into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. Our bodies are mortal, but our soul is immortal. We will live eternally either with Messiah or in the lake of fire, and you get to choose which. But you got to choose before you die. Because the book of Hebrews chapter 9 says, it's the point of man wants to die and then the judgment. So verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming, that is the rapture and resurrection of Revelation chapter 4, is the main harvest. And then when he returns for Armageddon to establish the kingdom, then in Revelation 20 are the gleanings. Meaning those who got saved during the seven-year tribulation period but died as martyrs for their faith. They conclude the harvest. And then comes the end. The end of what? No, it's the goal. The goal is the kingdom. When he, Messiah, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts it into all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. We've hit the 1230 hour, and it's time to close, but not without a last appeal. Everybody, just close your eyes and look in your heart. Have you been saved by faith? Because there is no other way. If you have not been saved by faith, today's your opportunity. In Psalm 105, David wrote, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, it says, Today, over and over again, Meaning that today is the day of salvation. You don't know whether you'll have it tomorrow. You will truly determine by your faith or lack of faith where you will spend eternity. The scripture tells us that if you will confess with your mouth that Yeshua is the Lord, 
the same Lord we see from Genesis to Revelation. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That's why today is so important. Then you will be saved. Your heart will be changed. Your life will be changed. God will write his laws upon your hearts and minds and you will afterwards want to follow him. You'll want to be obedient. You won't want to walk in sin anymore. I would urge any, anyone who's never had the opportunity to be saved, don't miss the chance today. For the trumpet will blow very soon and the dead in Messiah will rise. Then those who are believers in him will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. But for those left behind, it's going to be a terrible, terrible time. As the tribulation period, we'll see the death of billions of people. And to be eternally separated from God, cast in the lake of fire, that's, that's something that's just almost too hard to consider. So as we close in prayer today, Let's just say, our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, if there's anyone here who's not saved, please shine in their hearts to show the emptiness that only Messiah can fill. For John 14, 6 says, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. Father, thank you for all those gathered together here, all those studying the message of how Messiah died for us. He took our sins upon him that we might be set free. He redeemed us by paying the price we could not pay. And through his resurrection, Lord, we too may have eternal life to live eternally in peace, love, joy, and harmony. And Father, we thank you for your love for us that you would send your only begotten Son to die for us. Lord, thank you for all that you do for us. And we pray it and ask it in the precious name of our Messiah, Yeshua. All God's children said, Amen. Amen. May God bless you one and all.